do thank you this morning. Lord, um, again, for your grace towards us. Thank you for bringing us here and giving us this privilege of being able to come together as a body to worship, to pray, uh, to give, and for the proclamation and hearing of your word. And in all these things, Lord, we look to you for enablement. I ask that you enable me to deliver the message you would have delivered here. Grant accuracy and clarity. And open all of our ears to hear. To take heed to the exhortation of our Lord. He who hath ears, let him hear. Lord, may we hear in the sense of perceiving, understanding, embracing your truth this morning as your word is proclaimed. May it be so for our good, for your honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We have uh, this morning, well, I think this serves a couple of purposes, this passage before us. Uh, you may wonder why we have this little narrative in the, in the midst of uh, Jesus' teaching and the larger narrative. And we, we just completed one dis, uh, discourse here um, between Jesus and His uh, opposition. And as we've talked about before, that is... Uh, the opposition that Jesus is meeting has has been a, a major focus in the last few chapters, uh, chapters 11 through 13. And so we've had, uh, throughout those chapters, uh, long discourses of Jesus uh, speaking, Jesus teaching to the multitudes, addressing them in, in parables, and then even explanations of those parables, parables to His uh, disciples. And so now in the... In the the midst of this gospel story, you know, the life of Jesus, um, we come to this smaller narrative concerning John the Baptist. Now, I think one of the reasons it's here is, if, if you look back, chapter 13, verse 57, um, the people are offended. Again, the people who are opposing Jesus are offended at Jesus and His teaching. And Jesus responds this way in verse 57, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own household. And then it goes on to say about Jesus, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, this is in his own hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus is uh, opposed and the people are offended, scandalized by him. Um, the word there, offense, carries the idea of being made to stumble. So, uh, rather than embracing Him and embracing the truth that He's putting forward concerning the kingdom of heaven, it's a stumbling block for them. And so Jesus responds with this, uh, with this proverb, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And it's obvious there that that is applicable to him, to himself. But it, it has meaning beyond that. Now, I don't know if it's intended to be an absolute rule. Um, I remember, I haven't read it, but I remember a book years ago uh, about Billy Graham, and the title of it was a, a Prophet with Honor. And, you know, of course, you, you read that title and kind of your first reaction is, and then in light of what Jesus said, how can he be true, a true prophet? You know, because a prophet is, is not honored in his own country in his own household. But again, I don't know that it's meant to be an, an absolute statement in terms of this is always the case, but it certainly seems to be set forward as the norm. And so Jesus is saying of himself and of those who follow him, who are committed to the truth of God, that ironically, I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem like this is the way it should be, but ironically, they won't have honor in their own country, among their own kin. And so the verses we have before us today, we've got an example of that. In, in this case, it's not Jesus, but it's John the Baptist. And I think that's one reason this little short narrative, verses 1 through 12, um, just almost immediately follow that 
proverb. We see it played out in the life of Jesus. He's a prophet without honor in his own country, uh, specifically in chapter 13, the town of Nazareth. But, but of course, this will prove to be true. Uh, generally speaking, this will, be, this will prove to be true of the whole nation. And ultimately, Jesus is persecuted and crucified. And as we see this morning, it's also the case with John the Baptist. A prophet, and not just a prophet, but one whom Jesus has already testified, and one whom there is no greater than. I think it also serves as a, as a lesson in the form of a contrast. We have a contrast here between two men and two, uh, two ways of living in the personalities of Herod and John the Baptist. So you have one, one man, one lifestyle committed to selfishness, luxury, fear of men, and frankly, strange superstition. <laughs> Herod's, Herod's theology is not the best. We're going to see that momentarily. And the other, John the Baptist, you, you have a, a, a man and a lifestyle committed to selflessness, committed to righteousness, a life of, of self-denial and hardship and commitment to the truth. And that underlies all of it. Commitment to Truth. So, on the one hand, a life driven by selfishness and fear and superstition. On the other hand, a life driven by truth, righteousness, all that is good and true and just and holy. And the lives of these two men meet in the narrative before us. And so, as the writer points out, Matthew, in verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, let me, let me just say a few things here to kind of, uh, j- just some information that I think might, might be helpful um, concerning, concerning Herod. Uh, you, you see this uh, name quite a few times in the New Testament. And uh, first of all, this is Herod the, the Tetrarch, Herod and Antipas. Uh, the Tetrarch. Tetrarch is a title. Uh, it's not. It's not part of his name. That's a. That's a title. It's like saying Jesus the Christ or Pilate the Governor. And Tetrarch is a is a form of of a governor. And sometimes they're called king, but it's not a not a king in the sense of you know that you you tend to think of like over an empire like Great Britain or something like that. It's it's a king over over a small region, a small area. Uh, so probably the term governor is a good way to good way to think of it, and, and he's here representing the uh, the locals, so to speak. Whereas uh, Pilate is is a Roman. Now, because they're under Roman rule, he still has to be appointed and approved by the Romans. But 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 Pilate is more a representative of the Roman government. Um, so there are three Herods. Uh, in the New Testament, I'm, I'm one reason that's one reason I'm mentioning mentioning this, so that when you read, um, you'll understand that it's not always talking about the same person. So, for example, Herod the Great, which is this Herod's father, was ruling when Jesus was born, and he's the one that tried to put uh, or did put uh, all the babies two years and under to death in an effort to uh, kill Jesus. So let me just read you a few little comments here uh, that I'm making the distinction between the three. And this is coming from the ESV study Bible. If, if, you, if you have an ESV study Bible, then you'll be able to read along here from some of these. This is from a comment on Matthew 2.1 concerning Herod the Great, who is often called Herod the Great. And this is Herod Antipas' father. He's known as Herod the First or Herod the Great. He ruled Israel and Judah from 37, um, from 37 uh, B.C. through 4 B.C. 
he was an Adumean, appointed king of the Jews under the authority of Rome. Now, that, that's why Herod took such an interest when the Magi, you know, came and said, you know, we, we're looking for the king of the Jews. They're, they're looking for the Christ and Messiah. And Herod's thinking, I'm the king of the Jews. So he, he wants to make sure he stamps out any opposition. A um, little more information here. He ruled firmly and at times ruthlessly, and this is characteristic of their family. Herod I ruled ruthlessly, murdering his own wife, several sons, and other relatives. He was a master builder who restored the temple in Jerusalem and built many theaters, cities, palaces, and fortresses. So, uh, he was the one responsible for the rebuilding of, of the temple, Solomon's temple. Uh, after the uh, after the Babylonian, uh, well, it was, it was destroyed more than once. It was original Solomon's temple was destroyed, and the Jews were taken off into uh, uh, Babylonian captivity, and then later was rebuilt. You know, Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, and then again was later uh, destroyed. I think by Antiochus Epiphanes, um, and then and then Herod rebuilt it again, and that's what the Jews were referring to in one of their discussions with Jesus when they say, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. Uh, remember Jesus said, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. He was talking about his body. <laughs> and they thought he was talking about the physical temple. Um, so Herod I rebuilt the temple. Another, I thought, interesting note, uh, ex- excavations that... Uh, Herodium since the 1960s have revealed the circular palace fortress built atop its mountain, as well as the monumental buildings and huge pool below. In 2007, the excavator announced the discovery of Herod's mausoleum and sarcophagus. So they've found his uh, burial site in 2007. Um, and then, we'll just jump ahead to... to uh, Herod Agrippa, who we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, for example, Acts 12.11. Here's the ESV comment on that. Herod Agrippa I, a grandson of Herod the Great. He was reared in Rome, and because of boyhood playmates who later became emperors, he was granted rule over various territories in Judea until his kingdom reached the full extent of his grandfather's territory. So he's the grandson of Herod the Great that we were just talking about. And now, in Matthew 14, this is one of the sons of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S, uh, or Herod the Tetrarch. Again, that's a title. Uh, so this, this is a, a, you know, kind of a royal family, a family of rulers at that time. All right. Um, what about John the Baptist? Well, we've talked quite a bit about him, so I'll just touch on a couple things briefly here. Concerning his mission, you recall, he was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. So, we, we've got a contrast between two men and two lifestyles here. And one is the king, King Herod, king of the Jews, physically, uh, in that region. And now, and, and uh Incidentally, not anointed by God in the sense that you would think of, of say, Solomon or David or somebody of that nature. But he's, he's appointed, Herod's appointed by the Roman government as ruler in that area. And, and now, on the other hand, we have a true prophet of God in John the Baptist. Um, his ministry is spoken of, prophesied in a couple of places. One is Isaiah 40, verse 3 where he's called the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, we dealt with that when we went through Matthew 3. Um, Jesus says there in Matthew 3, for this, is he, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's Matthew 3, 3. He's also uh, called Elijah in the sense that he comes 
uh, in the spirit of, of Elijah. This is Malachi. This is, again, prophecy concerning him. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So these are prophetic descriptions of the ministry of John the Baptist. And Jesus said, and again, we dealt with earlier, this in Matthew 11, Matthew 11, 13 through 15, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, meaning John the Baptist, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is referring specifically to that passage in Malachi, saying that it has been fulfilled. The, the question was raised, you know, you're the Christ, but doesn't, doesn't the Scripture say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus is responding, saying, Elijah has come. Elijah has come. It's, it's John the Baptist. Um, example of that conversation is Mark 9, 11 through 13. They asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you, and this is Jesus speaking, but I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. There, there Jesus speaking of his of, uh, of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Okay. We're also told in Mark 1-4 that he came, that is, John the Baptist came, baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So his ministry consisted of preparing the way of the Lord. He's a voice in the wilderness. He's coming in the spirit of Elijah to turn uh, the children's hearts to the fathers. And, and how, how is that? How is that played out? Well, he, he preaches repentance. He baptizes and preaches um, repentance for the remission of sins. It's also recorded in Matthew 17, 10 through 13. So that's a little bit about the mission of John the Baptist. And uh, again, just to emphasize his preaching, Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is what his preaching consisted of. He was preaching repentance. You know, turn from sin to God, in other words. And what about his character? And this is where there's, we're going to make a, we're going to wind up drawing out a contrast here, uh, for example, between John and Herod. What about his character? John 3, 25. Yeah, John 3, 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of the disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, this is John the Baptist disciples coming to him and asking him about Jesus. It's like they're worried about John's popularity and John's ministry. The one that you testified about, that is Jesus, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. Here's John's response, John three twenty-seven. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, that little paragraph tells us volumes about the character of John the Baptist. It tells us volumes about his, his commitment, what, what he saw as his purpose. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's saying, Jesus is the Christ. He says, I've told you, you bear witness of me. I've told you, I'm not the Christ. He is the Christ. And what he's saying is, it's a good thing that, that 
so many are going to Him. He's saying, this, this has been my purpose, is to point to Him so that people would go to Him. So, is, is John, and, and, and this is a key element, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, is John then sacrificing all his own happiness and joy for the sake of Christ? Well, by no means. Look at verse 29, John three twenty-nine. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John is saying, if people are swarming to Christ, then my joy is fulfilled. Because that's what my whole life is about. I want to point people to Christ. I've come to prepare the way before Him. He's a voice in the wilderness, and that's what He is proclaiming. That Christ is the Savior who takes away the sin of the world. So, John says, and again gives great insight to his character and commitment. He must increase. He's talking about Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. Oh, that that were the expression uh, of, of all of our hearts. Jesus must increase. We must decrease. Matthew twenty-one thirty-two tells us that John came in the way of righteousness. Jesus says, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe. Again, Luke 3.16, familiar words. John says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. So you you can see uh, his humility and... Uh, again, his, his commitment to the glory of Christ. That's what his life is about. He comes, Jesus said, he came in the way of righteousness. In John 5.35, Jesus calls him a burning and shining lamp. He, he says, you have sent, John 5.33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. And that's that's... Important for what we're going to talk about this morning. All of this is, but but remember that little phrase. He has borne witness to the truth. That's what John's life was centered around. You have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was, he's talking about John, he was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. A burning and shining lamp, bearing witness to the truth, lighting the way, so to speak, uh, to the Savior. So there's a little bit about uh, the life of John um, in contrast to that of Herod. We know that John dressed a little differently, right? He wore camel skins and he ate a little differently, Uh not a diet, frankly, that I'd want to be on. Locusts and wild honey. Uh, he lived an ascetic lifestyle because he was totally given over to his mission. Now, we could all... Uh, well, I don't know where you would find a, a camel hair uh, you know, robe today. But I mean, we could all sell our nice clothes and go move out in the desert and, and uh, eat locusts and wild, wild honey. Like we talked about this morning in Sunday school, uh, the Lord has called different ones to do different things. So, uh, I'm not trying to emphasize those things, just His commitment. His commitment to the truth. He came, Jesus said, bearing witness to the truth. He was a, a burning lamp, shining lamp or light. His, his whole ministry and mission was focused around truth and bearing witness to the truth. Now, this is, this is the uh, uh, exact opposite of what you see in Herod. There's no hint of an ascetic lifestyle. Now, let me, uh, before we go back to Matthew 14 here, I, I, this has always fascinated me as well, so I wanted to share it with you. Um, this book is the writings of Josephus, 
Josephus was a Jew, first century Jewish historian. Um, so he lived. He lived in that area in Jerusalem at the time of Christ and uh, the time of the, uh, the events that you read about in the Gospel and in the book of Acts. Josephus was there, so to speak. Now, he didn't... Uh, he was a little younger. I mean, he didn't know Jesus, but he knew about the movement. Um, his, his mention of Jesus is very brief, so I'll read that real quickly, and then I'll get to John the Baptist. Um, but just thought you might find this interesting. Josephus writes, Now, there was, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. Now, that fascinates me. Josephus, a Jew, calls Jesus the Christ, and yet he was not, Josephus was not a Christian. So, I mean, that's a little hard to understand why he didn't... uh, why that truth didn't did not uh, draw him to Christianity, draw him to Christ. But at any rate, this is what he writes: He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. So there's Josephus writing uh, years later, but still during the first century, um, concerning Jesus. Now, here's what he says about Herod and Pilate. He says much about Herod, but I'm just going to read you a little part about... uh, I said Pilate, I mean John the Baptist. I'm just going to read you a little brief part about uh, John the Baptist here. Okay, um, now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God. Uh, I'll come back to that in a moment, but he's talking about a defeat that took place by the king of Arabia. And some of the Jews, some of the Jews interpreted this defeat of Herod's army as being judgment from God for killing John the Baptist. So he says, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and that that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. Now, he, he even gives a little description here of John's, John's ministry. John, he says, commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. And so, to come to baptism... For that, the washing with water would be acceptable to him, that is to God, if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or remission of some sins only, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. Now, when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put, uh, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise. Herod thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by separating, or I'm sorry, by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it should be too late. Accordingly, he was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Macarus. That's a a castle prison, uh, which I before mentioned, and was there put to death. Now, the Jews had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure against him. So that's Josephus writing concerning uh, Herod executing John the Baptist. Now, here's what I want to look at this morning uh, with all those facts now being, being, uh, being considered and as we have uh, the testimony of the same in the Scripture. Now, here's, here's how it plays out in the Scripture specifically. Herod has John the Baptist imprisoned 
Uh, we, were, we were told that earlier on in Matthew, and you may remember John sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus uh, from prison. John sends disciples to Jesus and says, Are you the Christ or do we look for another? And we talked quite a bit about that. He seemed to be uh, doubting the, the, the fact that Jesus was the Messiah at that time, probably because of his imprisonment. Um, so here, here John is imprisoned by Herod, and, and why? Well, we have some insight into that. Matthew 14, for uh, Herod, verse 3, For Herod seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So, John the Baptist had been saying, and the, and the, the, it's an imperfect verb there, which means it, it suggests repetition. John had been continually saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod, on a, a, a trip to uh, Rome, had, had fallen in love with uh, his brother, Philip of Rome, his brother's wife. She agreed to marry him on the condition that he divorce the wife that he already had, who was the daughter of the king of Arabia. And that's what brought about the scuffle that we were reading about a moment ago when, when Herod divorced his wife, Aretas. She reported back to her father, king of Arabia, <laughs> and he sent an army uh, to engage Herod's army on the border. And, uh, and defeated them. And, and the Jews, again, later uh, you know, saw that as a judgment for Herod uh, executing John. So just a little bit, of, little bit of history there. But again, what was it about John that irritated Herod? What was it about Jesus that offended the people in Nazareth? What was it, or what is it, about us that Jesus warned... Um, would, would bring about the same kind of persecution for us. Why did Jesus say, for example, in John 16, in the world you have tribulation. And it's the contrast between the two commitments, between the two lifestyles. Herod's life, and this is we can just use this as representative of Lost people in general, the world, the way of the world. Herod's life is, is driven by his own lust. He's, he's dedicated to luxury and comfort. He's motivated by fear of men and an evil conscience, which also causes fear. So when he hears about Jesus... And this is where some of the superstition comes in that I mentioned earlier. When he hears about Jesus, his first thought is, this is John whom I've executed. John is raised from the dead. I told you his, his theology is not the best. I mean, it's good that he believes in the resurrection. Because <laughs> that's, a, that's a fact. That's a, that's a true doctrine. But he seems to accept some pagan ideas of it. And the idea that, you know, uh, the spirits of... Somewhat like reincarnation. It's the spirits of some people come back. So obviously Herod is under conviction, right? He has some conscience. He understands that what he did was wrong. And because of it, he's in fear. And torment, in a sense. Charles Spurgeon writes this in his comment on verse 1. He's talking about Herod thinking that Jesus is the reincarnation of John. Spurgeon says, Great superstition often underlies a surface of avowed unbelief. And isn't that amazing that the, the people have truth before them. And this is all of us apart from Christ. People have truth before them and will reject perfectly reasonable, logical Truth in favor of superstition. That's what idolatry is all about, really. False belief, wrong belief, that is, is more acceptable to human nature 
And it's even something to watch out for in, in the churches because superstition finds its way in and kind of mingles with truth often. So just like in the case with Herod, he believes in the resurrection, which that's good. But he's totally twisted it and perverted it. So Spurgeon says, Great superstition often underlies a surface of avowed unbelief. He, that is Herod, had enough conscience to scare him, though not enough to change him. Another interesting statement. Enough conscience to scare him, but not enough to change him. I think that's probably true of the majority of people that are exposed to uh, the gospel message, for example. I think that's one reason. Um, I want to be careful here. I don't, I don't want to doubt that people are saved sometimes in these. I'm, I'm not saying it can't happen. But, you know, when, when you do these productions like Heaven's, what is it? Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames or something like that. And then people talk about what a great response they bring about when they're over. Well, I think what has happened is you just scared everybody half to death. And that doesn't necessarily save anybody. In fact, it, it, it may be nothing more than superstition or a burning conscience that, conscience that as Spurgeon says, there's, there's enough conscience there to scare them, but not enough to change them. So it's, it's not enough to be scared of death and hell. James 2.19, James says, Even demons believe and tremble. And we see that played out in the Gospels, don't we? When Jesus approaches a demoniac and they fall down before Him and cry out, Have you come to torment us before the time? They, they believe, they know who Jesus is, and they tremble at His presence. But here's the distinction. And this is also the distinction between Herod and John the Baptist. There's, there's no love for or commitment to truth. Truth. Herod has some superstitious ideas. He's in fear of some things. Some of those things are true. But he has no commitment to that. He, what drives him is his own lust. What, what he seeks is his own pleasure and comfort. On the other hand, John the Baptist is driven by a commitment to truth. Jesus said, He came. He came in the way of righteousness. He was a shining light, a burning lamp. And His whole life and ministry is about commitment to truth. He's, he's willing to, if necessary, and it, and it was necessary, He's willing to go to death. Not to be distasteful, okay, but <laughs> to lose his head for the gospel. Because it's true and, and he believes, he knows the reality of the message he was preaching. He's driven by truth. It's not enough to be scared of death and hell. Even demons believe and tremble. The question is, do you love truth? which would mean you love Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we see that that's not, that love for truth is not present in Herod's life. Let's go back to the passage here. Verse 3, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. She was also related to him, by the way, uh, the, the, the daughter of an uncle. Um, and and the, the Scripture forbids, forbids that kind of marriage relationship. Um, specifically, in Leviticus 18.16, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Leviticus 20.21, 20, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. So they shall be childless. And this is what Herod had done, and this is what... John is bringing to his attention, again, verse 4, John had been saying, that is continually saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, what, what is he doing? John is, again, bringing truth to bear 
on life. And boy, there's a lot of implications here, I think. Uh, I do think, let me just say this, because this is in con- context, it's, a, it's political. I mean, here is, here's John the Baptist facing a ruler of the people. And he speaks truth concerning him. It, it is incumbent upon Christians, it's, man, it's, a, it's, it's a mandate that we hold in honor those who are in office. It doesn't matter if they're with another party and they embrace a different philosophy. The fact that they are in office means they are put there by God. That's Romans 13, chapter 13, first few verses. We, we must, when we speak about them or to them, if we had that opportunity, um, honor them. But that, but that doesn't mean we have to not tell the truth. Now, I do think, uh, you know, I mean, just for example, you, t- you take the issue of abortion. Um, we can, I, I think we can and should speak out loud and clear against the murder of unborn babies, preborn babies. And if given the opportunity, you know, I, I was listening to uh, one of Wayne Grudem's lectures recently, and he had, uh, he had attended years ago, he had attended a town meeting in Illinois where he used to live. And had an opportunity to, you know, how they, you see them on TV, they do, or maybe you've been to one, do the town meetings. They get in line, line up to the mics, and they get to ask questions to the, uh, the politician. And I don't remember the, guy, the, uh, the senator's name, but he was a senator in Illinois. And, you know, he was pro-abortion. And so Grudem waited in line to get to the microphone, and when it came his turn, he very respectfully, Senator so-and-so, When you stand before God on the judgment day, what will you say to Him about how you have voted concerning abortion? So, there's a a way to be respectful and still tell the truth. And I think that's what John's doing. In other words, what I'm saying, I don't think he was just being disrespectful and and, uh, brash and all that. He's also a prophet and... prophets (laughs) prophets <laughs> as part of their role in the Old Testament uh, they, they did have a, a uh, all, they did often speak um, to rulers in this manner uh, demanding repentance but that's what irritated Herod John is committed to truth he's speaking truth and Herod couldn't stand that and Herod and, and this is another thing it's, it's just irony but it's it's uh, again so indicative of of the way the world thinks and acts. Herod hated John for speaking the truth, and at the same time, he liked him. It's just strange, isn't it? Um, he heard him with pleasure, we're told in one account, and yet he sought to kill him. Verse 5, Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. He feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Herod knew that John was popular, supposedly a man of God. So, in one sense, he honored him in, in, in that he thought, you know, there was something special about him too. But, on the personal side, he wanted him dead because he was convicted by the truth that John was preaching. It's a strange combination. He wanted him dead, but he hurt him with pleasure. He wanted him dead, but he protects him um, because he's afraid to kill him. doesn't know how the people are going to respond. But he gets himself in a bind. Again, another example of his uh, way of living. uh, The daughter of Herodias comes in and dances at Herod's birthday party. And obviously, you know, this is is all promiscuity happening here. It's not, not something innocent. And he's pleased with her. And so he basically tells her, I'll, I'll give you anything you want to have for the kingdom because he's so pleased with her. And she, being instructed by her mother, asked for the head of John the Baptist. Now, why does she do that? Because Herodias doesn't like John also because of his stand for the truth. They know their relationship is wrong. And like Spurgeon said, they have enough conscience 
conscious to be scared, but not enough to change. So what they try to do is manipulate things to get rid of the threat. In other words, we don't want to give up the lifestyle. We don't want to give up living for self. So, the logical thing then is, what we need to do is get rid of the threat. Throw out truth. Discredit it. Deny it. I was involved in a little bit of a, just briefly, a Facebook discussion in the last couple of days, and that's how people were... Attacking Christianity, um, referring to themselves as being open-minded. That's the way the world does. You know, we're the ones that are easy to get along with. We're the open-minded. You, you Christians, you, you who hold to the idea of absolute truth, you're arrogant, you're closed-minded. And we need to rid ourselves of you. And so, uh, Herodias demands through her daughter, the head of John the Baptist, and Herod is in a bind now. He doesn't want to kill John. I mean, he does, but he doesn't. He wants to, but he doesn't want to because he fears the people. But because of the oath's sake, verse 9 says, and he's, because of his gifts, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. How morbid. Is that? And all, really, to sustain his, his lifestyle without the threat of the truth. The truth. And Jesus comes, the ultimate preacher. The ultimate preacher. Jesus comes preaching truth. And his message is very similar to that of John the Baptist repent, believe the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, one major difference between the two, John never does any miracles, and Jesus is repeatedly doing miracles. So you would think, if for no other reason, I mean, in other words, if they don't like what Jesus says, at least they would believe for His work's sake, right? They, they can't deny the miracles that He's doing. And yet, we saw at the last part of chapter 13, they're offended at Him. They stumble over Him. Because He's a prophet of righteousness. He's proclaiming truth. And the world's not interested in truth. In fact, in our day, they've given a whole new definition to it. Truth in our culture, is no longer even thought of in absolute terms. When you hear the world talking about truth, it's, it's relative. In other words, they, it, it might, a certain thing might be true for you, but the opposite might be true for somebody else. Or something totally different. But that, again, is, is, is nothing more than a way of trying to bring relief to the conscience by circumventing absolute truth. Herod is given to a life of selfishness, indulgence, pleasure-seeking, driven by the fear of men, superstitious religious beliefs. John the Baptist is given to a life pursuing the glory of Christ, pointing people to Christ. He's, he's driven by his commitment to truth. So there, there's the two lifestyles. There's the two individuals. One totally self-centered. The other totally Christ-centered. One says, it's all about me. And the other says, it's all about him. I must, I must decrease. He must Increase. Now it's left to us to decide which one is more descriptive of us. For example, in our in our religion, in our in our religious experience and activity, 
is it driven by truth and love for Christ? Or is it more the product of superstition and fear? I'm, I'm scared of hell, so I'll sign a card and I'll go to church. Heard a story, and I, I won't even say the name because I don't know if it's true, but, but, uh, but, I, but the, uh, you see this attitude a lot, though, but of a, a famous entertainer who supposedly, uh, you know, wore, he wore necklaces and he wore a cross and a star of David just in case. Now, that's blatant superstition, but uh, that, that mindset comes in much, much more subtle forms. I mean, we, we console our conscience by saying, boy, you know, I go through the motions. I do what's, what's required. So, is our religious experience and activity driven by that type of thing? Fear? Superstition? A Jesus that we've made up in our own head? Or is it driven by biblical truth and a love for Christ. And is that evident in our lives? You know, we can see the heart of Herod and we can see the heart of John the Baptist by looking at their lives. We have the testimony of their lives in the Scripture. And there's a stark contrast. And both of them were professing Jews. The religion of the day. And of their culture. And yet the differences are astounding. And as I said in Sunday school this morning, and I close with this thought, it's just the bottom line is what we treasure the most. Remember Jesus talking about treasure and where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The bottom line is what do we treasure the most? The knowledge and experience and joy of knowing Jesus Christ or the things of, our, of, of this world. Our own pleasure, our own comfort, our own selfish pursuits. Which is more valuable to us? Let's pray. And if you would, uh, stand please and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for Your Word, for making these things known to us, for showing us, Lord, the truth and the beauty and the majesty of the Son of God, the wisdom, revealing to us the wisdom of Your work in salvation through sending Your own Son into the world to take the punishment of sin upon Himself for those who believe. Lord, grant uh, with us that our lives be committed to truth. That we be, as a church and as individuals, Christ-centered. Not only in our doctrine, but in our living. And may it be a testimony to the world, to the community around us, to co-workers and friends and neighbors. May it be a testimony of the reality of the Gospel and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And may it be for Your honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.